You know, every year there appears to be that one toy that's like the hottest craze of Christmas. You know what I'm talking about? You know, that toy that, that your kid just has to have and everybody's trying to get it and everybody's sold out. There's, there's just that one toy uh, that really kind of becomes a referendum on whether or not you love your kids, you know? I mean, let me just walk you down memory lane for a minute. Remember, remember these toys? Look at this first one. See if you remember this one. There it is. 1983. All the way back in 1983. Uh, you know, that was the craze back then. Remember, it had a birth certificate, and it was just, I mean, this, I bet your daughter, you, you know, some of you got in fights in the department store trying to get one. And, and then, that was, this one was amazing. A Game Boy, 1989, portable electronic gaming system. For the first time now, you know, they could sit in the car and they could play this thing, right? And they had cartridges and all that kind of thing. And if you really, really loved your kids, you put out a little extra money, you got the Game Boy Color, right? Or that might have been the next year, I don't remember. But Game Boy, now look at this next one. Does that bring back memories? 1996, not sure why Tickle Me Elmo was such a big thing, but it was a big, 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 big deal. And then this next one was kind of strange, 1997, Tamagotchi. Remember those little, little electronic games that there was like a little animal inside or something? You had to feed it, it got hungry. You had to feed it and had to keep it alive and it would go to the bathroom and it was just, it was, it was just kind of strange. But who could ever forget this next one? Furbies. Now, I'm sorry if some of you parents are having flashbacks right now, but uh, that, that was just a, a craze all across America. Before we don't put up the next picture, don't, don't put it up yet. Do you know what the craze for this year is? Hatchimals, exactly. You say, well, what is a Hatchimal? I have no idea. I just know that everybody wants one. It's, it hatches out of the egg and grows or something. I'm not exactly sure. Uh, but folks, this is not just an American craze, by the way. This is all over the world. I was doing a little research on this, and I found out that in Belfast, Ireland, in the Belfast paper, there was a story, and, it, and here's the first line of the story. Thousands of children who have, let me try again, thousands of children who have put all their eggs in one basket are set to be disappointed this Christmas as the season's must-have toy is sold out everywhere. That was in Belfast, Ireland. Ireland, they say. And then Hollywood finally caught on to what we're doing, right? Hollywood finally caught on that parents will do anything. They'll go to any great lengths to, to try to get something for their kid. And so in 1996, there was this movie that came out, a Christmas classic. Actually, it was not very good. but It was Jingle All the Way. And, and it had uh, Sinbad and uh, Schwarzenegger, and they were trying to get a Turbo Man for their son, and they went all over Minneapolis on Christmas Eve competing and trying as best they could to get that one present that everybody wanted and nobody had. You know, it's just amazing. It's amazing the links that parents will go to to give a special gift to their child. What's even more amazing than that, though, is the links that God went to to give a gift to you. You see... Every birth is a miracle, and every child is a gift from God. But 2,000 years ago, there was truly a miraculous birth that led to the greatest gift this world has ever known. 
The story of, the, of this miraculous birth is told in Luke chapter 2. Would you open to God's Word, uh, to the book of Luke, Gospel of Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, I'm going to begin reading in verses 1 through 7. And I'm just going to ask you today, I don't always do this, but I'm going to ask you to stand in honor of God's Word as we look at verses 1 through 7. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. And Joseph, so Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. And he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. And she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. Thank you. Would you be seated? Now, if you take this story just on face value, it is an amazing story. But my question as I read it today and as I read it this week is, but are we still amazed by it? Are we still amazed by it? Now, I want to... Re- remind you of something that's important before we dig into this story. I want to remind you that when Luke wrote this story, he was not writing a Christmas story. When Luke wrote this story, he was writing this gospel to an individual. Let me show you this. Go to chapter 1 of Luke. Uh, As he introduces this book, I want you to notice in chapter 1, the first four verses, how he starts this book, this story of Jesus. He said in verse 1, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were the first, who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account. Notice this. It seemed good to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. See, Luke was writing this gospel to an individual. He was, in essence, writing a research paper. He says in the first four verses, I've done my research. I've investigated the claims about Jesus. And I'm writing this down in an orderly way, an orderly account of the story of Jesus. And I'm writing it for you, Theophilus, because I want you to know the certainty of who Jesus is. And so as Luke explains the birth of Jesus to Theophilus over in Luke chapter 2, as he explains the birth of Jesus to Theophilus, it's interesting what he, the information that he gives him. And so I just want to kind of break down these first seven verses and help you to see the things that he emphasized to Theophilus as he explained the birth of Jesus. So first of all, if you're taking notes, he he tells Theophilus that the birth of Jesus is rooted in history. That's the first thing I want you to think of. The birth of Jesus is rooted in history. 
Have you ever wondered why these seemingly boring details are part of the story? You say, what boring details are you talking about? We'll read it again, the first three verses. Just follow along. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to register. I mean, have you ever wondered why? If he's writing out the story of Jesus, why he starts with these seemingly boring details of the story? I mean, think about it. Everybody look up here. If I were writing a story of your children's life, if I were going to write a story of of the life of your child, how would you like it if I started your story or the story of your child this way? In the year that Barack Obama was president and Donald Trump was president-elect, their parents drove to the city of Easley to the post office to pay their taxes. If you read that, you would say, we need a new writer. You don't start telling the story of my kid by talking about who the president is and where they went to pay their taxes. That's not an engaging story. That's not the way to tell the story of my child. And that's exactly what Luke does. He starts the story of Jesus and how he was born and all that. He starts by talking about who's in charge and where they went to pay their taxes. Why those boring details? Why involve all of that stuff? It's interesting, Luke is the only gospel writer to do that. Luke is the only gospel writer who relates the material in his book to world history. In other words, Luke tells the story of Jesus. Don't miss this. He tells the story of Jesus by placing it in the context of history. But again, I have to ask the question, why? Because he wants Theophilus to know that the story of Jesus is more than just a story. It really did happen. He wants Theophilus to know, listen, this is not just a story I'm making up. This really did happen. Let me give you the historical framework. Let me give you the details to let you know when this happened. This story of Jesus is not just a story. It really did happen. You see, I think Luke understood that all of us, Theophilus and all of us, have the tendency to question, well, you know, I'm not sure about all of this. And how do we know it really happened and all those kind of things? In fact, I've run into people over the years. I bet you have too, and maybe you're even one of them. I've run into people over the years who have said, you know, I really don't believe this story about Jesus. I believe it's just something that people made up, trying to control people. I've heard people say this, you know. Somebody made this thing up, and just the church made it up, just trying to control people. I really don't believe that Jesus was real, people will say. You know, it's kind of like, A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, there was Jesus. You know, there's there's, uh, Luke Skywalker, and there's Obi-Wan Kenobi, and there's Jesus. You know, in their minds, it's all just kind of a big story. In their minds, it's all just something that somebody made up, and it's a great story, but that's all it is. And Luke would say, no. The birth and the life of Jesus is rooted in history. There really was a Caesar Augustus. He was the first and greatest Roman Caesar of of Rome. There really was a Caesar Augustus. There really was a governor named Quirinius who was governor of Syria. And in the same way, there there really was in their lifetime 
a man named Jesus who was born in Bethlehem. It's not just the story. It is His story. It is history because God is in charge of history. And in the context of history, God was working out His eternal redemption plan. You know what that means for you today? Especially if you are one of those people who say, I just don't know if I buy all this Jesus stuff. You know what that means for you today? The story of Jesus is really more than a story. It really happened. And because there is historical evidence for who Jesus is and when Jesus came to this earth, uh, Luke says he came during the time of Caesar Augustus. He came when Quirinius was governor. Because Jesus really did exist, you have to decide what you're going to do with him. You have to decide what you're going to do with him. It's not enough to say, I just don't believe in him. I don't believe he ever lived. Luke says, oh, no, 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 no. He lived during the time of Caesar Augustus. He lived during the time of Quirinius when he was governor. He was just as real as they were. The second thing that Luke emphasizes as he talks to, or as he writes this out for Theophilus, is this. The birth of Jesus was guided by providence. The birth of Jesus was guided by providence. You see, nothing about the birth of Jesus was by accident or coincidence. Every detail of that first Christmas hinged on the providence of God. You know what the word providence means? It means to see beforehand. It's a special gift that only belongs to God. He's in control because He can see things that happen before they happen. Providence is simply God guiding and providing and taking care of your life. And when you look at this text, you see the providence of God all over it. Or if I could put it this way, when you look at this story, you see the fingerprints of God all over it. Look in verse 3. Let me show you what I'm talking about. It says in verse 3, a very simple detail, everyone went to his own town to register. Everyone went to their own town, their town of their forefathers, to register for this tax that Caesar was in, uh, imposing. Everyone went to their own town to register, unaware that God was about to break into history. Unaware that the providence of God was at work. Everyone went to their own town for the simple mundane thing called taxes and registration. Everyone walked back to the town of their forefathers, unaware that the thing that Caesar had declared was actually accomplishing the will of God. You say, well, Pastor, I don't understand how that accomplishes the will of God. Well, look at verse 4. Luke focuses on a very important detail in verse 4. So Joseph also went up. From the town of Nazareth, that's where Joseph and Mary lived. They went from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. Now, the reason that that's important, this is not just a geography lesson. Uh, Luke is not just saying, okay, Theophilus, uh, they lived in Nazareth and then they went down to Bethlehem to pay this tax. Uh, the reason that those two places are important is because Micah, the Old Testament prophet Micah, hundreds and hundreds of years before this event, in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, Micah prophesied that Jesus, the Messiah, would be born in Bethlehem. Now, the problem with that prophecy is this. They lived in Nazareth. 
They lived about 80 miles away. And just when it appeared that God had made a mistake, or at least God's prophet Micah had made a mistake, because Mary and Joseph were not in Bethlehem, they were in Nazareth, just when it appeared that, that they had made a mistake, Caesar declares that there needs to be a, a registration and a tax. And Luke, writing this about 65 years after it happened, with perfect hindsight, hindsight now, and with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Luke looks back on it and says, don't you see? That was not coincidence. Don't you see that though they lived in Nazareth, they went to Bethlehem because they had to pay the tax, but they really went to Bethlehem because of the providence of God. God brought them back to the town of their forefathers. Every painstaking detail, God was working it out. You see, the clear lesson for all of us is that in the midst of our common lives, God can intervene and accomplish His uncommon plan. He can use the pagan Caesar, or He can use the godly teenager Mary to do His bidding. He can use something as commonplace as taxes, or something as miraculous as the virgin birth. To accomplish His will. Can I give you a word of hope today? Anybody need a word of hope? Let me give you a word of hope today. God knows what you don't know, and God can do what you can't do. It's called the providence of God. God sees what you can't see. He can accomplish what you can't accomplish. And God is at work in the mundane, ordinary things of life. And though you may be walking from Nazareth to Bethlehem, begrudgingly because you got to go pay taxes. What you don't know is that Almighty God is working in the mundane things of life to accomplish His divine plan. The reason that gives me hope, and I hope it for you as well, I'm reminded of what the psalmist said in Psalm 139, verse 16. He says, listen to this, All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. The psalmist said, I understand that you are a God of providence. And all the days ordained for me were written down before one of them came to be. So when Luke was writing to Theophilus, he says, Theophilus, I want you to understand, this story of Jesus is rooted in history. It's more than just a story. It's rooted in history. Also, you need to understand, it's guided by providence. The providence of God is what made this a reality. God was guiding Mary and Joseph. This whole story was guided by God's providence. His fingerprints are all over it. Then there's a third thing that he emphasized. And this is really the heart of what I want to talk to you about. The third thing that Luke tells Theophilus is this. The birth of Jesus was the fulfillment of a divine promise. The birth of Jesus was a fulfillment of, the divine, of a divine promise. Look at verse 6 and 7. While they were there, while they were in Bethlehem, the time came for the baby to be born. I, I would underline, the time came for the baby to be born. Now, of course, that is referring to the fact that she was nine months pregnant and it was time for the baby to be born. But I think it actually is referring to more than that. The phrase, the time came for the baby to be born, I believe is also referring to the time for the promise to be fulfilled. Let me tell you, show you what I'm talking about. You see, 
the promise that was about to be fulfilled in Bethlehem began all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis chapter 3, sin entered into the world. Satan tempted Adam and Eve, and sin entered into God's perfect world. And God made a promise back then. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God made the promise that there was one who, was, who would come who would bruise the head of Satan. There is one who would come who would one day finally and forever deal with Satan. And from that day forward, men have looked for that day when God's promise would be kept. And for hundreds of years, there was tension between the hope that there is one who would come who would finally bruise the head of Satan. There was tension between that hope and the reality that no one had come. There was this... For hundreds of years, there was this tension between the promise of the Messiah, the promise of the one who would come, and the reality is that he had not come. So God spoke to the great patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, with a resounding promise that one was coming through whom the nations of the world would be blessed. It was just a, an extended promise based on the first promise in Genesis 3.15. And yet the lives of the patriarchs ended in slavery. And instead of an exclamation point, there seemed to be a question mark over what God had promised. Where is he that God had promised? Then there came the period of the kings who ruled over God's people in the Old Testament. And here was the anticipation. There is going to be coming the one who is the king of kings. This is the time, in their estimation, this must be the time when the king will come. This must be the time when God will keep his promises. And during this period of the kings, everyone anticipated the king would come. But the last of those kings died in shame and in captivity. And the question begging to be answered was, Where is he who is to be born king of the Jews? When will God keep his promise? And throughout the Old Testament, God's prophets spoke about His birth again and again and again. Isaiah prophesied 700 years before the event occurred. Isaiah prophesied 700 years before that God was going to keep His promise and that He would be born of a virgin. This one to come would be born of a virgin. Micah, as I've already referred to, prophesied that one was coming who would be born in Bethlehem. God was going to keep His promise. He would be born in Bethlehem. And in fact, there were 44 Old Testament prophecies Direct, uh, speaking about God's promise, speaking about the one to, to come, speaking about the life, the, and the birth and the life and the ministry of Jesus. 44 Old Testament prophecies predicted some aspect of Jesus' life and ministry. 44 Old Testament prophets kept saying, He will keep His promise. But the last of those prophets was Malachi, and as I told you in the very first message of this series, after the last prophet Malachi spoke, there was 400 years of silence. And the question that would not die was this, will God keep His promise? Can I ask you a personal question? Have you ever gotten tired of waiting on God? Come on, let's be honest now. 
I bet you have. You, you've just gotten tired sometimes of waiting on God. You know, you've claimed a promise or you felt like God made a promise to you and, and you've waited on that promise and you've waited on that promise and you've waited. I, sometimes I, I've done it. I don't know about you. Just get tired of waiting on God, right? A couple of weeks ago, two or three weeks ago now, uh, our family went to Williamsburg and <clears throat> we went to a place called uh, Bush Gardens and at Bush Gardens they have a during the Christmas time, they have a thing called Christmas Town. It is incredible. And this is no exaggeration. There are literally 8 million Christmas lights at Christmas Town. 8 million. And it is the biggest light show in North America. And you go from country to country looking at all these lights, and it's just beautiful. We go there every year. It's just part of our annual tradition. Now, there's one thing that you need to know about your pastor. I tend to walk fast. I don't know why, but I do. You see me in the hallways. You, you, you see me somewhere else. Uh, if you go on a, on a mission trip with me, you know about that, walking through the airport. You know, it's just, I just walk fast. I don't know why, but I always do. Well, the reason I tell you that is because when we were going to Christmas Town, most of the time, Lisa's dad doesn't go. Uh, he stays at the condo. The rest of the family goes to Christmas Town. He's 86 years old, and so it's just not something that's easy for him to do. Well, Lisa's sister convinced him to go this year. Now, I love her dad. I love Mr. Hosier. But I, honestly, Lisa's in the other service right now, and that is a good thing. She does not know what I'm about to tell you. I promise you. She, has not, she does not know what I'm about to tell you. I'm glad she's going to sit on the screen so I don't have to look at her face. Yeah, so here's what happened. I tend to walk fast, and I'm thinking Mr. Hosier's going to be with us I'm going to have to make sure I walk slow. And so I try as best as I can. I'm, I'm walking funeral pace slow. And he's still way back there. And so then they decide, we're going to get him one of those scooters. You know, we'll, we'll rent one. They got those electric, uh, electric scooters. I thought, praise the Lord, hallelujah. He can keep up with us. That's awesome. And so they get him a scooter. They, they, they put him in it, and I promise you, this is exactly what happened. They said, now this handle is reversed, this handle is forward. You turn that knob to adjust the speed. As far as brakes, just let go, and it brakes automatically. And this is what he did. He grabbed that knob, that handle to go forward, and he literally went one foot, and he said, whoops, that's too fast, and he turned it down. <laughs> then he grabbed the thing, went forward one foot and said, that's still too fast, and he turned it down. And I'm thinking inside, no, no, you're ruining it. And so I start walking. He's behind in the motor scooter, and Lisa kept saying, slow down, slow down. He wasn't talking to her. She was talking to me. Slow down. Wait on Dad. Wait on Dad. And he's back there going, mm-hmm. here's what I did. I just have to confess it to God and everybody. Lisa and her sister needed to go to the bathroom, and her dad needed to go to the bathroom, and they went to the bathroom, and, uh, and I said, I'll just stay out here, and I will guard the scooter. <laughs> you know what I did, don't you? <laughs> I went over that speed control, and I went, <laughs> I turned that scooter up, buddy. And so he got in the scooter, and, and we were walking away, and Lisa said, wait on Dad, wait on Dad. And she looked around, and she said, he's right behind us. I said, yeah, I know. <laughs> but I never did tell her why. 
And to this day, she doesn't know, except now she's probably watching it on the screen down there. But have you ever wanted to do that with God? Have you ever wanted to just kind of speed God up a little bit? Wouldn't it be nice if we could do that? Wouldn't it be nice to say, God, I'm so tired of you being so slow. I just want to turn that, I just need to speed you up a little bit. Here's what you need to understand. For centuries and for centuries, people were waiting for God to keep His promise. If they had had a speed control, they would certainly have turned it up. They were waiting for God to send the Messiah. They were waiting from generation to generation to generation to generation. And the question was, will God keep His promise? Will God send the Messiah? And the message from the manger was yes. God will keep His promise. God has kept His promise. God will send the Messiah. God has sent the Messiah. Look at it in verse 6 and 7. While they were there, while they were in Bethlehem, the time came for the baby to be born. Thank God he's, kept, he's going to keep His promise. And, verse 7, she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. God kept His promise, but the promise was not fulfilled in a way that you and I would do it. In fact, nobody would have written the story this way. We wouldn't want our baby or our grandbaby to be born in a stable or a barn or a cave and placed in a feeding trough. That's what a manger was. It was a feeding trough. I mean, are you kidding me? We've been waiting for generations and for generations and for generations for this one to come, and an angel forgot to make reservations? There's no place for him to sleep. There's no room for them in the inn. And they, he's placed in a feeding trough? Are you kidding me? As Luke wrote this story for Theophilus. He says, you need to understand, when God kept His promise, He placed Him in a place you and I would never place our baby. And that is significant. We want to talk about it more next week, but hear this. God chose a place none of us would have chosen. He did what you and I never would have done. And oh, by the way, listen, listen, listen. He did that at the end of His Son's life too. He chose a place none of us would have chosen. It's called a cross. He did what you and I never would have done. You see, Jesus would not be the earthly king that the world desired... He would come as the humble Savior that the world needed. And there is a reason He was born where He was born. There is a reason He was placed in a feeding trough. And we're going to look at that next week. But here's what I want you to understand. The story of Jesus is rooted in history. It is, the story of Jesus is guided by the providence of God. And the story of Jesus is the fulfillment of a divine promise. It is amazing what lengths God went to to offer you a free gift of salvation. You know, next Sunday you're going to open a bunch of gifts, probably. 
Next Sunday morning, you're going to get up and you're going to open some gifts. Some of them you probably wanted. Some of them probably are not exactly what you were asking for. Some of them might be impersonal or impractical. Some of them you can use. Some of them you'll put on a shelf to give somebody else later down the road. Some of, some of them are going to be temporary. They're going to break. You're going to lose them. They're going to wear out. But none of those adjectives apply to God's gift to you. God's gift is personal. It's not given out of obligation. It's given out of love. God's gift is practical because you need this gift more than you could ever imagine. God's gift is priceless. You could never buy it. It was paid for by the blood of His Son. And God's gift is permanent. It will never wear out. It will last forever. And you can never lose it. Where are you going to get a gift like that? Nowhere except from God. I mean, if I told you that I have a gift for you that will heal your deepest hurts, a gift that will forgive every sin you've ever committed, a gift that will help you understand the purpose of your life, a gift that will fill your life with joy and peace, a gift that will, prompt, that will enable you to have a secure future in heaven, wouldn't you want a gift like that? God went to great lengths to make that gift possible. If you'll do what you did to give your kids that little toy that they so desperately wanted, doesn't it make sense that God would do what He did because you so desperately needed it. Let's pray about that. I don't know if you've ever received that free gift of salvation, that free gift of forgiveness, that free gift that God offers. But you see, the Christmas story is not just a story. It's an invitation. It's an opportunity. you have to decide that by faith you will receive what Christ has done on your behalf. By faith you will accept that He came and died in your place for your sin. But before He could go to the cross He started out in a cradle. He started out in a feeding trough. God will go to great lengths to make His gift available to anybody. Today I hope and pray that you'll come and receive that free gift of Jesus. Father, thank You for Your love and Your mercy that never ends. Thank You for showing us through this letter written to Theophilus the links that You would go providentially keep Your promise and give us the world's greatest gift. In Christ's name I pray.